Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend. You're tuned into Radio Stranahan. And now, here's your presenter, Lee Stranahan. Good afternoon, everybody. Lee Stranahan, Radio Stranahan. Hello. New haircut? Is that a new haircut you have? Not me. My hair is getting long, which means it's more than a half an inch. But you, as usual, look lovely today. Welcome to the show that makes you smarter each and every day. By making you more independent. That's right. I don't tell you what to think. I tell you how to think. And that's better, really, if you think about it. We have a great guest today, my friend Jay Christian Adams, former Department of Justice official. We'll tell his story when Christian comes on, but you, you've heard the story. Remember that dude with the cane out in front of precincts in Pennsylvania it was with the Black Panthers, the, the new Black Panther Party, back in the 2008 elections. Remember that dude? Kane dude? Big Daddy Kane, whatever you want to call him. Jay Christian Adams is the guy who left his job over the lack of Obama and Department of Justice response to that issue. And he's the author of a great book and, uh, We're going to be talking to him about this mess. The Democrats are trying to stir up anything, the desperation, anything they can do to try to keep people from figuring out that Donald Trump was actually elected president. I talked about this with a caller the other day, that they're going through the various stages of death. There's Angle, not Angle, Angle's the... Chancellor of Germany, am I correct? I'm not looking at my notes here, but I think that's who it is. No, no, no. The anger, let's go through the stages of death the Democrats are going through on Trump. Anger, denial. They kind of got to bargaining. Oh, bargaining, I guess that'll bring us to what happened yesterday. I spoke about this a little bit yesterday. We ended up taking almost all of the show with Susan Olson talking about her controversy and uh, what's going on with her. I'll have a story about that up at Breitbart. In the next day or so, about what we talked about yesterday, Susan Olson, Cindy Brady from the Brady Bunch, Trump supporter, who was basically fired, in theory, because of a homophobic rant. If you look at the headlines, we were the only people to get this story right because we had an exclusive interview with Susan yesterday. And... uh, trying to declare her a homophobe. And we went over in detail yesterday how ridiculous that charge was. And we also found out that she likes Seb Gorka. That's a good thing to know. 
Seb, of course, was a guest earlier in the week on the show, and I'm sure we'll have Seb back again sometime because I like Seb as well. As I pointed out, Seb Gorka, you've never heard him speak. He's got the best voice. He's got gra- it's pure gravitas. Pure gravitas. It's sort of Eastern European meets British. The dude just sounds smart. He could read the phone book if there was such a thing. So I don't think there's a phone book anymore. People used to say the phrase used to be he could read the phone book and make it sound dramatic. So I guess he could read Google and make it sound dramatic. But anyway, Susan Olson turns out, I have to tell Seb that still. I've not gotten a word to him. I did tell Roseanne. I was talking to Roseanne. Susan Olson yesterday was saying she's a big fan of Roseanne Barr, and I know Roseanne a, a little. I know Roseanne enough where we, we talk sometimes. She's never invited me to her house. Let's put it like that. But, but I'm not sure she'd be seen in public with me. But we do talk sometimes, and so I, I, I gave her the word that Cindy Brady wanted to hang out with her sometimes. So we'll see. Roseanne's covering. She she's talked about it. She's recovering. She uh, she broke her leg. She's recovering from that. She also, I'm in an undisclosed location in the Upper Plains of the United States where it's, uh, let me check the weather. It's darn cold. That's what it is. And uh, Roseanne was bragging about all the warm weather places she lives. So that was nice. Nice to hear. She sent a picture. I like Roseanne. She's an independent thinker, and obviously I don't agree with her on everything. Because here's the thing. Roseanne has so many varied positions even she doesn't agree with herself on everything. I think that's fair to say. But anyway, as long as I can bring celebrities together, when I can connect Cindy Brady to TV's Roseanne, I think I've done humanity a service. My, I could just stop broadcasting for the week there, but there's other actual things to talk about, and a lot of them are relevant. Like, hey, I've been talking about this, but I'm going to keep talking about it. Syria and Aleppo, I've got some stuff to play for you here. I have a story I submitted. should be up on Breitbart momentarily. Uh, by momentarily, I mean I have no idea when, but I assume sometime soon. could be during the show. You see, I write. I'm not an editor. So once I submit things, they're just like submitted. But I've been talking about the situation in Syria and how badly the media has been covered. Just badly is, is honestly an understatement. They're lying about it. So my son and assistant Shane sent me a very good piece he saw on Medium. I retweeted it. It's a piece if you go to Medium, medium.com. It's a piece called The Syrian War Condensed, A Rigorous Way to Look at the Conflict. It's a short little chart that the author wrote and about how you can compare the Assad regime to the so-called quote-unquote moderate rebels. And this is a great comparison, actually. This is a great comparison. He points out, look, you can't compare Assad's regime to you know, he says a government like Norway, and he's right. He says you've got to compare it to the alternative. 
and the alternative in this case are the moderate rebels. And so he goes over some of the differences. Let me just read a couple of them. He says the Assad regime is authoritarian, autocratic, he, he says, but nominally democratic with elections. Whereas the moderate rebels, he says, are Islamo-fascist who explicitly refuse democracy. Well, that's true. That's, that's, that's hard to argue with. That's true. The moderate rebels believe in Sharia law, as it, he also points out. They're not moderate rebels. He points out that in terms of casualties, the Assad regime allegedly hits civilians, whereas the moderate rebels allegedly targets civilians. And that's true. Again, these are jihadists. Now, this is interesting. He talks about the support. The support for the Assad regime, he correctly points out, is Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, and Egypt. Now, that, that, that may not sound like a savory group of states. You're probably not planning your vacation. Where will I go? Russia, Iran, and Egypt. But let's talk about who's supporting the other side. Al-Qaeda. Qatar. The United Arab Emirates. Saudi Arabia. Turkey. And the United States State Department. And he says pre-Donald. He says Donaldo. But he means pre-Donald Trump. But this is true. And this gets to the point I'm going to make next. You're going to want to hear this. The United States is supporting the Islamo-fascist side. Now, the other thing that he talks about here is PR. Who's doing public relations? And he says the public relations for the Assad side There's very little public relations outside of Russia today, RT, and similar outlets. Sputnik, that's another one. Now, who's doing PR for the Islamist, quote-unquote, moderate rebels, the Sharia-compliant, democracy-hating, diversity-hating Salafis? Who's doing PR for them? He lists mainstream media journalists such as the Washington Post and New York Times, that's true. Think tanks, that's true. And overactive PR firms financed by Qatar and Saudi Arabia. You know, we had Terry Stroud on the other day. She's with a group seeking justice for the families of 9-11 victims by allowing them to sue Saudi Arabia. And she pointed out that the Saudis, since that law, remember what happened on that law. It was passed overwhelming majorities in both houses of Congress. Our president, our current president, Barack Obama, vetoed it, taking the bold stand against justice for American citizens. Unbelievable. That veto was overturned. And now who is stabbing the families of 9-11 victims in the back but the ambiguously Republican duo, John McCain, and his longtime companion, Lindsey Graham. That's who's stabbing them in the back. That's who 
is sticking it to the families of 9-11 victims. It's unbelievable. Pretty much if there's a bad side to something right now, it's a safe bet to think John McCain's going to be on it. I got to talk to Kurt Schilling about that. I was on his show yesterday morning, and Kurt pointed out he's friends with John McCain. He's known him, but he's a little disappointed with him. I've got to point that out to Kurt. If I can do anything to completely disenchant Kurt Schilling with John McCain, I think stabbing the 9-11 victims' families in the back for the sake of Saudi Arabia is part of it. But the reason I'm bringing them up in this context is this article, which, again, I just tweeted it out. It's called The Syrian War Condensed, A More Rigorous Way to Look at the Conflict. It's on medium.com. You can just search for it there. But he points out that there are PR firms, public relations firms, funded by Saudi Arabia, who's promoting the quote-unquote moderate rebels. By the way, as John McCain does too. John McCain's a big, big fan of these so-called moderate rebels. Huh, you think there's any connection to Saudi Arabia there? But the reason I mentioned the justice for the families of the 9-11 victims is because the Terry Stroud mentioned to us the other day that the Saudis are spending, by her estimation, $1.3 million a month to try to defeat this bill, even though it's been passed. Unbelievable. So this shows that the Saudis know how to spend money on public relations and lobbying. And by the way, one of the firms, I pointed this out, and Terry agreed. Well, it's a fact. You don't agree with the fact. She acknowledged that, that one of the people, one of the firms that the Saudis have hired is Tony Podesta's firm. That's the brother of John Podesta, the modern art-loving, I'm going to be fair and call him that, the modern art-loving brother of John Podesta. Tony Podesta has a big lobbying firm. And if you thought Tony Podesta's taste in art was disgusting, his taste in lobbying clients is worse by a long shot. But that's who's supporting Saudi Arabia. Now, what's the result of all this in Syria? I have some audio to play for you coming up right after this. It's quarter past the hour. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Number to call, 619-924-0786. If you want to be part of the show today, 619-924-0786, please do call in. If you have a question or comment, again, the goal is to make you smarter, and that's what I'm doing. But if you have questions, if there's something I can tell you, something I can explain, remember, I'm the rare pundit who will actually tell you when he doesn't know. If I don't know the answer... I'll tell you I don't know. But then I'll probably go look it up. So it never hurts to call. 619-924-0786. The show today is once again brought to you by my own citizen journalism school. Again, I've been thinking big, trying to think about this. I'll tell you. Here's my slogan. I'll try it out on you since you're listening. And it's a slogan, so that's what you do with them. I kind of feel like if I had four dozen good journalists and half a dozen good editors, I could change the world. 
I don't think it takes much more than that. I, of course, am America's finest journalist. We know that. Long established. But I am only one person. And I can only cover so much. And I really do feel like everybody complains about the media, but no one wants to do anything about it. I want to do something about it, damn it. That's what I want to do. I take what Andrew Breitbart said seriously. He wants to take down the New York Times and CNN, me too. But you're not going to do that. You're not going to take them down and replace them with nothing. And I'm a writer for Breitbart. I'm a lead investigative reporter for Breitbart. In fact, I love working for Breitbart, but i got to say, Breitbart is really opposition media at this point. It's not trying to be everything to everybody. It's a conservative site. So I think it needs to be replaced with something better, and that's why I started Citizen Journalism School. I'm going to be announcing in the next day or so the Citizen Journalism School mentorship program. You can be part of that where you work one-on-one with me, and it's a fraction of the cost of traditional journalism school, as I pointed out, because it's the holiday season, which means it's darn cold where I am. It's the ideal Christmas gift. If you know somebody who's interested in journalism, it's great. And you can find out about it by going to citizenjournalismschool.com. Sign up for the mailing list and get the free course, Building Your Media Empire, which I think I'm – I should be getting the first – I hesitate to make a a promise because I've said before the course is coming soon. And I've meant it to be coming soon, but I've been sick, and you don't want to even get into it. You don't want to hear. You don't need my excuses, but you need the course, and I think the first lessons will be coming out this week. Citizenjournalismschool.com. Sign up for all the information there. Learn to research right, report the story, everything you need to tell the truth, make a difference, and make a living doing it. That's who's sponsoring the show today. Police straight in, radio straight in. The number to call in 619-924-0786. So there was a fascinating State Department briefing yesterday. And a reporter for the Associated Press named Clapper. I'm forgetting Clapper's first name. I wrote about it, too, so I should remember his first name. But I'm old, and things fall out of my head at this point. But he had a fascinating exchange with John Kirby, who's the State Department spokesman. This is on Syria. Let me play about 44 seconds of this. This was his first exchange with Clapper yesterday. This is, again, an Associated Press reporter asking a question. You'll be able to figure out who's who. This is blunt reporting. And I, by the way, you're going to notice the mainstream media is not talking about this. But let's hear hear that a little bit. Uh, Lee Stranahan, great party. Whoops, whoops, wrong one. Hang on. Let's try it again. The end of the siege in Aleppo is not the end of the war in Syria. So that's yeah, John Kirby. That's uh, that's what I wanted to start with today. Here, Brian. here comes the reporter. So um, on Aleppo, <coughs> we've heard a lot of moral outrage from this podium, from the secretary, from. The U.S. the U.N. ambassador yesterday from the White House. 
What is what is the goal of all of this? Uh, I mean, we've been hearing the same message for many months, in fact, for years, yet nothing has really changed to stop it. So what what is the goal right now of kind of laying all the blame on Russia? What are you doing differently to stop the war now? Well, the... The, you know, you, I, I don't know if you meant it. Now that's, that's an uncut segment of the question. He says, what are you going to do differently? We've had a lot of moral outrage. You're saying, you come up here to the podium, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is, this is his point. The State Department, as I pointed out, has been on the wrong side of the Syrian conflict, steps up to the podium. They express moral outrage at Russia. And he asked, again, at the end there, here's the, the question. The end of the siege in Aleppo is not the end of the war in Syria. Oops, wrong one again. Hang on. Here's the, here's the question at the end. And listen to John Kirby's response. This is uncut. He sounds like Elmer Fudd. Listen to John Kirby's response. Here. What are you doing differently to stop the war now? Well, the, the you know, you, I, I don't know if you meant it. But that did. It's amazing. It's a simple question. What are you going to do differently? You, you're constantly talking about how outraged you are by the war. What is the Obama administration? What are you doing differently, do differently? to stop the war now? Well, the, Listen. the, the you know, you, I, I don't know if you meant it. Wow. That's just sad, right? I mean, that's just sad. Now, Clapper didn't let up. And I, again, I have a piece coming at Breitbart about this whole thing with video. You failed repeatedly doing the same thing over and over again, which is a combination of trying to bring together people in some sort of talks with uh, a sort of imperfect. I'm going to stop it for a second. I'm going to play it again. But you'll hear Clapper just outright say, you failed. Listen, it's great. And listen to Kirby's non-response. You failed repeatedly doing the same thing over and over again, which is a combination of trying to bring together people in some sort of talks with uh, a sort of imperfect ceasefire. And then when things go badly, you get really angry and accuse them of war crimes or crimes against humanity, and then nothing ever changes. You haven't succeeded once. Ouch. That will leave a mark, as they say. That will leave a mark. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. That is pretty much what John Kirby heard yesterday. That's a slight exaggeration, but not much. Read my article coming up on Breitbart. Watch the video for yourself. Again, make up your own mind on this stuff. But that is pretty much you all. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. This is, that's what's going on. This is what John Kirby, he was driving home you thinking failed. this. You failed. Going to be you going failed. To bed you failed. This. You failed. You failed. That's a great summary of our Syrian policy. And Clapper's point, I can't, it seems like Clapper is opposed to the Assad regime because he's an American media person, and, but is basically saying, like, look, if you're opposed to Assad, which the administration says they are, why haven't you done anything? 
And again, you're not hearing the mainstream you media failed. point you out. Failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. Now it got it got much worse in the press conference. It got much worse. Here's Clapper's follow-up statement to John Kirby. Whoops, whoops, that's not it. That would be a weird follow-up statement. If his follow-up statement was simply music, that would be odd, don't you think? Wait, hang on. It should be so easy. I have so many audio clips right now. It should be so easy to find this. Unless it didn't get uploaded. Hang on one second. I'm having to do something that you're not supposed to do on radio, which is I'm reading. It's no fun. I shouldn't be reading. Let me see if I can get this. Let's see if we can find this. Not so far. Well, that's odd. It's not there. Well, I have the whole video clip. I have the whole video, audio, everything else. It turns into a tussle. I don't know how else to put it. It's a tussle. Where John Kirby eventually tells Clapper, this AP reporter, to calm down. When And Clapper goes at him. Kirby cannot answer the question. What is the U.S. doing differently? What is the U.S. doing differently? If you say you're opposed to this regime, what are you doing differently? And Clapper points out there's only about four or five weeks of this administration left. This is where if I had it, I would clear, I would cue the applause sound effect. But there's only about four or five weeks left. And are you going to do anything differently? And Kirby just can't answer. He's got nothing to say. Because they're not going to do anything differently. And the reason they're not going to do anything differently is they're boxed in. They're boxed in. We're forced to sort of half-heartedly support the Saudi Arabian position for a variety of reasons. But we can't come out and tell the American people that we're supporting the bad guys in Syria. Because that doesn't sound good, does it? That doesn't sound good at all. So we can't do that. So American foreign policy is being hoisted on its own petard here. We're being hamstrung by these stupid policy decisions. By the way, stupid is an underestimate. Evil, that might be a good word, because people are dying. I, I did a periscope about this yesterday, and I got upset, as I want to do on my periscopes. I want to do. This is why I said, I said it during the commercial, and I don't want to be another commercial for citizen journalism school, but it is incredibly frustrating to me how bad the news media is. And the coverage in Syria is just a prime example of that. It's so bad. And I saw this for myself when I went to Beirut in 2013 and was covering it. I was getting the story right. And everyone else was getting the story wrong. And it wasn't hard to get the story right. I'd like to point that out. It was not difficult to get the story right. It was simply a matter of showing up, talking to people, not having an agenda. That's the big trick. In fact, that's a big problem in, in all reporting, is people have an agenda. I still see people, sometimes the agenda is political. 
Sometimes the agenda is personal. Either way, it's wrong. I still see people on social media trying to salvage this Pizzagate fiasco and just say, "There's well, no, it's there's something right about it. The craziest thing they say on that story, because the whole, let's, let's go over that. The whole premise of that story is that John Podesta and other people were using a secret code for child molestation in the Podesta emails. That's the claim. That's why it's called Pizzagate, that pizza meant something other than pizza. There's no proof of that, and no one even offers proof of that, but that's the crux of it, and that's why it's called Pizzagate. It is not called pedophilia gate. And what people try to do is they try to say, oh, well, you know, maybe that's not accurate, but there is such a thing as pedophilia. Well, thanks very much for that news update. Thank you. No one's debating that point. But see, people have a personal agenda. It's human nature. It's it's why the Saudis spend so much money on PR. People know advertising works. And advertising has a psychological basis. People have learned how to persuade and influence other people. And the way you persuade and influence other people, there's a variety of techniques, fear, bullying, repetition, 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 repeating yourself. These are the techniques. They've learned this. This is why you'll see commercials on over and over again. And it's real simple. But people have a personal agenda sometimes. And sometimes that personal agenda is they just don't want to admit they're wrong. That's it. It's the single worst characteristic you can have as a journalist, there's a difference between being persistent and just not admitting you're wrong. And people need to learn the difference. 30 minutes past the hour, coming right up. J. Christian Adams, election law expert, right after this incredibly brief bumper. No false modesty, please, Lee. Forget the Pulitzers. You know, you should be getting a, a, a global prize for what you've been doing because it, it's really something that nobody else has done and, and you're really leading the way. Radio Stranahan. This is Radio Stranahan, Lee Stranahan. Joining us on the line right now from Election Law Center, Jay Christian Adams. Hey, Christian, how are you doing today? Uh, greatly, I expect some bumper music like Farewell to Kings or something. I'll tell you, I I, I debated uh, using vital signs for you. That's what I was thinking. If you're more farewell, that's fine. I like that. Just yeah, that's fine. S- signal transmitted, message received. Yes. Well, the way vital signs comes in, too, just that slow buildup. By the way, most people have no idea what we're talking about, and I don't care. But uh, – the way Vital Signs comes in, it's a really good little radio bumper. It's a great little – it kind of just sneaks in. But uh, yeah, with Jay Kishin, what Christian and I are talking about is the music of Canadian power trio Rush, which we are both huge fans of. Although, Christian – now, how many times have you seen Rush live? I think, eight, I think 18 times. Uh, I've seen them probably, I, I want to say, about 12 different venues. Wow, yeah. 
So you win. Christian wins. I think the only way I may win is I think I may have seen him before you did. Yeah, I first time I saw him was uh, July. I think first time I saw him was July 8th, 1984. Yeah, so I saw him before that. I saw him, I think the first time I, well, I saw him in the Permanent Waves Tour at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, for sure. Yeah, you got me. You got uh, me. Yeah. Yeah, I think I got I think that was my first one. And then they did a mini tour before Moving Pictures came out. And they played some songs from Moving Pictures. And I saw them on that one as well. So that was between Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures. But did you catch them on the last tour, the R40 uh, tour? You know, that is the, that's the only tour I missed in 32 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And why did you miss that one? That's kind of a big they one came to miss. At a terrible time. I think it was over Memorial Day weekend in Washington, D.C. when I uh, had plans. And it was just unavoidable. I was terribly upset about it. And, uh, um, you know, they're, they're talking about now playing, like, not that kind of tour anymore. What they'll do is, like, seven shows at, like, uh, Radio City Music Hall, um, sort of what they have if they do anything else. Yeah, that that's smart to me. I mean, the, the, the kind of road touring they've been doing for, you know, 40 years now, that's tough. But... Uh, doing an extended gig like you say at Radio City or Madison Square Garden or wherever, Massey Hall in Toronto, someplace like that, that makes a lot of sense. Because it's not like they, they don't play well. <laughs> it's not like yeah, that's it's right. not like they've lost it. Or, they haven't lost it or anything. If you see any of those, uh, I've, I've seen some videos from the shows, and they're doing great. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's great. So, Christian and I could talk about Rush basically all for the rest of the hour and a half. And we'd enjoy ourselves. We would enjoy ourselves, but you think differently. So, Christian, we got a lot. You and I haven't talked in a while. It's been a while since we've talked. Um, uh, so, let's get into it because there's a lot of, you know, the ideal time to talk to you would have been prior to the election because one would think there would be all sorts of election controversy. But interestingly enough, this is a screwed up enough cycle where there's a tremendous amount of election I'll call it faux controversy after the election's over so I mean what are we seeing now with the with the recounts and the electors being threatened and everything else what do you what do you make of this mess well first of all it shows that the institutional left uh, really is is not a believer in the rules whether they win or lose. If they win, they attack election integrity efforts like voter ID. Uh, they don't clean up voter rolls. If they lose, they organize threats on presidential electors. They drag people out of cars in Chicago, and they beat them to pieces on video while yelling he voted for Trump. Uh, they attempt to challenge results in court. They do recounts. This is what they do. They don't like they don't like losing. And so they also don't like limits. They don't like limits on their behavior. And so this is what they're comfortable with. They're threats, uh collusion, conspiracy, uh manipulation. It's not it's not appealing to people's hearts. It's rigging the system. Now during the during the prime uh, not the primaries, during the general election in I think it was the third debate, I believe it was the third debate, 
where Donald Trump was asked, and he only got the question. Hillary Clinton did not get the question. Will you accept the uh, results of this election? And his response was, well, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to promise. I'm going to wait and see. I'm paraphrasing. Um, He was absolutely savage by the media and the Democrats for that. Hillary Clinton called it a threat to democracy. I thought it was a perfectly reasonable answer to say, I'm going to wait to see what happens before I can tell you that I'm going to agree agree with what happened. What did you think of that comment? What did you think of that response during the general? Well, of course, it, it demonstrated that the left frequently loves to project. They love to project their own uh, their own plans by ascribing them to somebody else. And so when Trump said that, it was prudent because, look, we've seen what Al Gore did. Uh, we have seen that the elections, we have 4 million, 4 million, Lee, ineligible, dead, improperly registered voters in this country on the rolls. That's not according to Christian Adams. That's according to the Pew uh, Center on the States. Pew is hardly a right-wing uh, organization. So you got 4 million people on the rolls improperly because the, the Justice Department won't enforce the rules and states aren't doing their job. And so Trump was prudent. He said, look, you know, let's suppose you have an election like Norm Coleman lost in Minnesota. Norm Coleman should not have accepted the results of that election. He should have challenged it every way to Tuesday because uh, Al Franken won that election because of voter fraud, period. There was over 1,000 ineligible felons who voted in that election for Al Franken, and they should have never been allowed to vote. And that's above the margin of victory in that case. So, look, Trump was prudent. Hillary projected, and now you're watching the thugs and the, uh, the miscreants in their multiple war rooms dedicated to upsetting the electoral college process. And that's what you have to expect with the modern institutional left. They are no longer the party of Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. Uh, they're the party of Che Guevara and Tom Perez. Yeah, and I, it's obvious even the Clintons were emboldened by eight years of Barack Obama and moved to the left. And when you add their, their, I mean, the Clintons were, look, let's face it, in the 60s and 70s, the Clintons were on the left. uh, And they made no bones about it. And then they went Alinsky and became a little more establishment. And it seems like they were emboldened under the Obama administration. Now, let's talk about that. I hinted at the top of the show when I mentioned you'd be on, I I hinted about it. I know you've told the story a hundred times. But for people who don't know it, can you just tell the story of the new Black Panther intimidation and your experience at the Justice Department? Because I want to set that up and find out your reaction to uh, – I, I think people – here's why I want to set the story up again. Not It's a good story. told it a lot. But the reason I want to set it up is until I met you and started talking to you, I didn't appreciate uh, how important a role the Department of Justice played in the election process. And I think a lot of Americans don't realize that either. I don't, I don't, I, I guess I've never really thought about it is the best way to put it. So could you just tell that story and it'll start to get us into the importance of the DOJ and the whole process here. Oh my gosh. The justice department has an enormous footprint when it comes to our elections. Anytime there's a federal election, uh, the justice department, um, uh, 
enforces the Voting Rights Act, which basically sets up the rules of the elections in a lot of places, and they send out federal observers. If people get beaten up or if people get intimidated or if people with nightsticks uh, and paramilitary uniforms are standing in front of the polls on election day, sound familiar, uh, the Justice Department enforces the Voting Rights Act. And so, you know, the Justice Department, Lee, also is supposed to enforce motor voter, which requires states to keep clean voter rolls. That's why we have 4 million ineligible voters on the rolls. So I was working at the Justice Department, and, of course, the new Black Panthers in 2008, which is hard to believe it's eight years ago now, uh, were in front of the polls in Philadelphia, and they had a weapon. I mean, it wasn't just like texting out sample ballots. They had a billy club. And they were stalking the entrance of a poll. And the left likes to say in an almost all-black precinct, well, yeah, that's kind of the point. Uh, if it's 98% and you're a member of a racial hate group, uh, what does it mean to those 2% in that precinct? So, you know, I brought the case. Others brought the case. It was approved during the Bush administration. And right after the inauguration, the Obama administration pulled the plug on the case. They ordered it to be dismissed against the new Black Panthers. So, you know, that's why I eventually left the department, because I I was under subpoena to testify as to why they dismissed the case. And the department told me, don't comply with the subpoena. So I said, essentially, screw you, I'm quitting. And I complied with the subpoena. So that's, that's the short version of the story. Yeah, no, and again, a lot of people at the time uh, heard about the story. And, and, but I, I think it's really important, especially since Trump won. So let's, let's get down to that. It looks like you know, Jeff Sessions is going to be the nominee for attorney general. What's your take on Jeff Sessions? Jeff Sessions is the perfect pick for attorney general. He has a love for the rule of law. <clears throat> he appreciates the, the founder's uh, design when it comes to the federal government. He is a measured person. He has great respect for American institutions. Uh, He is everything that Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch were not. Uh, They were radicals. Uh, Jeff Session is a a mainstream uh, lawyer who cares about uh, the rule of law. So he's the perfect pick. Uh, He will be confirmed. And he will have a very difficult job dealing with the entrenched, pervasive institutional radicalism among the civil servants at the Justice Department, particularly in the Civil Rights Division, where they are hardcore ideological leftists, straight from the the Occupy Wall Street mold uh, of leftism, the, the muscular, not the theoretical. Uh, they're, you know, from all the muscular Soros-funded left-wing groups like the Advancement Project, Demos, uh, uh, ACLU. Basically, if you work for an organization that George Soros funded, it was your ticket to getting hired at the Justice Department as a lawyer in the last seven years. And so Sessions is going to be facing these hordes of radicals who will attempt to undermine President Trump's agenda and it's going to be a very difficult fight. Yeah, let's talk. I want to talk about that in just one second. It is 43 past the hour right now. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us 
Number to call in, 619-924-0786. That number again, 619-924-0786. We're talking to the great J. Christian Adams from the Election Law Center, expert on all things election-related, and worked at the Department of Justice. So that takes us into the question uh, that was we sort of teed up, which is, so Jeff Sessions is going to be the the uh, let's say he's confirmed he's now the attorney general what power does he have does he get a clean slate of people working under him or does he take over a department where it's like a I'm, I'm, i'll make an analogy to a university where you could become president of harvard right now and the, the professors a lot of them because they're tenured aren't going anywhere does that make sense? In other words, you know, sometimes you can go in and clean house and change things. Sometimes you can't. So what's the situation with the Department of Justice since you worked there? No, it's it's the second one, the president of Harvard example, although I, I would submit it's worse. It's like, uh, uh, it, it's like a, a, a naval captain uh, seizing an opposing ship, and uh, he, he takes it over. Uh, with the old enemy crew, <laughs> I mean it's it's worse than the president of Harvard. It's like uh, he's the captain and he has very few uh, helpers on his side, and he's relying on the enemy uh, sailors to sail the ship for him. I mean it, it it's a it's a terrible situation because these people I I, Lee, I I you know this crowd okay maybe your listeners don't uh, or some of them certainly do but some might not. This crowd is full of hatred. This isn't just like I, gentlemanly ideological uh, differences. It is raw, bubbling hatred for people like Jeff Sessions. Uh, you know, he is a, uh, to them, a bigot, uh, a sexist, homophobe, evangelical, Christian, southerner, uh, uh, meat-eating uh, a lunatic. And they're not just full of sort of, oh, well, that was nice, we lost the election, come on in, we'll try to work together. No, they're 100% consumed by hatred for people like Jeff Sessions. And so it is going to be uh, an extraordinarily difficult uh, venture to get that department back on the straight and narrow and respecting the limits on power that the law and the founders put into the Constitution. Yeah, and I think that's, again, that's one of the things I think people don't necessarily realize, because I think what you, what you sort of assume is, well, if we have a new attorney general, he's going to have his own team. And really, almost none of these cabinet appointments uh, are going to work that way. In a lot of cases, these departments are funded by career bureaucrats, basically, who aren't going anywhere. And uh, as you say, have an agenda that's going to be completely antithetical. And in the case of the Department of Justice, I would argue that it's even worse because they're lawyers. So, uh, and yes. I, I could I could insert a lawyer joke there, but I but I mean this seriously. To my way of thinking, and again, correct me if you think I'm wrong on this. The hatred and anger that they have, which I think is very real is going to come out in legalese and yes. uh, uh, a certain sneaky, I don't know how else to put it, a sneaky way of subverting the whole process. Does that sound like, are my fears warranted there? 
Lee, I got to tell you something. I've I've had this. I've been interviewed about stuff like this dozens and dozens of times, and never before has the host interviewing me exhibited the level of sophistication that you just did with that observation. You are absolutely on target. They're not only going to be intransient bureaucrats, they're going to be talking like the smartest people in the room, that Jeff Sessions doesn't understand this area, that we're the experts. I went to Harvard Law. I went to Yale Law. Uh, I'm the smartest person in Bethesda on my block. Uh, and you just don't understand, Mr. Rube, Attorney General. And if I do lose this argument, I'm going to be leaking to the Washington Post. That's the sort of situation he's going to encounter. You're exactly right. Let me give you some numbers. The Civil Rights Division, the Civil Rights Division, where I was at the Justice Department, has over 800 employees, maybe 900 employees, about many or if not most of whom are lawyers. Okay, We're talking 400 lawyers. Do you know how many political appointees Jeff Sessions gets to put in to manage this? Like six or seven. Six or seven people. The assistant attorney general, the principal deputy assistant attorney general, a couple of deputy assistant attorney generals, and a couple of counselors to the attorney general. That's it. To manage a group of eight or 900 radicals, Jeff Sessions will have eight people. That's it. And And so... It, it's a game of whack-a-mole or a, a whack-a-nut uh, where he is going to, you know, these eight people essentially are going to be spending all their time, uh, you know, trying to roll back the fundamental transformation in a nest of vipers. I mean, it, it's going to be extremely difficult to do. Now, like I said, he's the perfect pick. There's nobody better that could have done this. Chris Christie could have done what Jeff Sessions can do. Because don't forget, Sessions has been inside the beast. I've said for years that the next attorney general has got to be somebody who has experience at the Justice Department, who knows the lexicon, the language of these super smart lawyers when they argue, the process, the bureaucracy, the procedures. He's done that because he was the U.S. attorney in Alabama. So Jeff Sessions is the absolutely perfect pick to do this. Now let's but now let's let's add something to it because you mentioned the institutional left a couple of times. Add to the complexity of the situation he faces. So as you point out, he's got 400 lawyers and you know a couple hundred bureaucrats literally working against him, most likely in the in the Department of Justice just in that one civil rights division. And by the way, the civil rights division, uh, in case people aren't aware of it, is vastly important right now uh, because it affects uh, again correct me if I'm wrong but the civil rights division is important because it's being used that division is one that's being used to uh, control to do everything. voting to do, yeah, everything, to, do, to do everything yeah that's a good way of putting it now let's add to, the, to, to that complexity okay he's also going to be facing the rest of the institutional left so on a signature issue for sessions immigration, let's say, okay, because that's an issue that he knows, he's passionate about. Here's what he's up against. He's up against attorneys who are not going to want to enforce the law or change the law. But he's also up against pundits in the media who are going to come out against him, and they're uh, supported by these institutional left groups. simple example of one, and the reason I brought up immigration, is the ACLU. 
the AC, the American Civil Liberties Union, which, uh, you know, by the way, does some good work. That being said, there are parts of the ACLU, particularly like Los Angeles, for instance, the, almost the whole purpose of the ACLU in L.A. right now is to support open borders immigration. That's all they do, basically. It's their, it's their reason for being. And, and so it's not just that he's got people internally, but he's got all these external forces that are going to be doing stuff like holding protests with their countergroups or writing Huffington Post editorials. And then the media will pick up on the Huffington Post editorials. And, of course, people from the ACLU and the Lawyers Guild will be making sure that anybody who gets arrested in a protest is, you know, is coddled through the system. So, I mean, I, I you know, I'm, am I doing okay at expressing the, the army of forces against him, not just internally, but externally? No, that's what makes it a fearsome task because, um, you know, the Obama administration recognized that the justice department was ground zero for the fundamental transformation. Okay. That's why they put a radical like Holder in who did not care about criticism from any direction. He did not care. It emboldened him. And that's why Obama was able to do so much. Civil rights division, it's not just immigration. It's police, voting, schools, transgender, uh, uh, hiring practices, education. They all have sections related to this, little offices inside the civil rights division, uh, disability, you know, they couldn't open pools a couple of years ago, you might remember, because bureaucrats in the Civil Rights Division mandated that every pool in the country had to have a lift chair. Remember that? It was on Drudge for like a week or a month. I mean, half of what you read on Drudge about the horrible things happening in the country are coming out of the Civil Rights Division. And so it's not just votingly, it's everything. The Civil Rights Division touches more parts of American life than any federal agency. Everything comes out of the Civil Rights Division. Now, so what – do you have any tactics that you think Sessions or the Trump administration can do to try to cut this off? Because this has been – I've been saying this for months before the election. I said, in a sense, who, who wins, it, it really matters, but it doesn't matter in the following sense. I was saying this for a while. Number one, the division – in the country is not going anywhere. And number two, people don't realize how vast the institutional left is and how it almost forms a shadow government. Um, yeah. And a government where a lot of it's not about laws, it's about policy and hiring. And uh, it's, it's one thing that people see the laws. Oh, Congress passed it, the president signed it. That's very public. But internal policy, for instance, or just shifting. There's a lot of things that these departments can do that doesn't require any approval from Congress, any approval from the president, and can have a big impact on people's lives. So what would you do you have any tactical ways you would start to try to cut the head off this beast here? Yeah. There's a single most important thing which I'll tell you in a second. But you talk about shadow policies. There's something called guidance. The Civil Rights Division of Education and Justice sends guidance. That's how the whole transgender thing got started, is where uh, they send guidance, which is essentially a letter written by a bureaucrat on DOJ letterhead that everybody out in the real world takes seriously because they think that it's the law. 
and it's never the law when it comes to the Obama Justice Department. It's the frontier. It's beyond the frontier of what the law says. So I think the single most important thing, Lee, the most core, the core strategy to effectiveness is you need to put people in, in the government that are honey badgers. And I think I, you know what I mean by that. Um, they just can't care what the Washington Post says about them. They cannot care if their name appears in the New York Times. They cannot care if they're the victim of Alinsky tactics. They simply have to be immune. And you have to put honey badgers in because honey badgers don't care. They go for the honey even if they're getting stung by the bees. So you have to have people in political offices who are honey badgers. They simply do not care about criticism from the left. And unfortunately, half of Washington, if not more, does not fit that qualification. Uh, particularly a lot of Republicans uh, who, you know, came from the exact opposite philosophy, where during the Bush administration, a lot of people, and I can name names and won't, if you appeared in the Washington Post negatively, is the worst thing that could ever happen to your life. It's like showing up on a sex offender registry. And, you know, if you showed up in the Washington Post, they would tell you to stop doing what you're doing. The, we don't want to be in the paper. And, you know, I'm confident that the president-elect and the attorney general are honey badgers. Uh, will they be picking honey badgers down below? Yeah, that's that's a great question. We have a caller here, uh, area code uh, 423. You're on. What can we do for you today? You're on with Christian Adams. Hey, Hi, uh, my name's Keisha, and I have been um, listening to you guys, or you really, for the past couple of um, months and following you on Twitter. Um, I have a question about what you are talking about. Um, it's going back to something I heard you mention on, I think, one of your periscopes about getting involved on the local level. And um, what he's talking about as far as the civil... Uh, 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 civil rights division. Civil rights. What? Yeah. Right. What can we? What can ordinary citizens or you know just voters do locally to help? Is there anything we can even do? Is there any kind of influence or any way to counter these attacks? Or that's, well, that's great. Am I making any sense? Yeah, Teresa, that's a that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, Christian, what what can people do? Because a lot of times people. People do feel powerless. So is there anything you can do as a citizen to help Jeff Sessions out or the Trump administration out in combating this stuff? Well, yeah, I'll tell you what what is is critically needed right now. I don't know what area code 423 is. I I could try to guess based on uh, what what she sounded like, but um, the point is that your senators need to hear in the next, in the next uh, three weeks or four weeks, Jeff Sessions must be confirmed. That is something every single person can do is to call and email their Senate office saying confirm Jeff Sessions because the institutional left is going to be working to do the opposite. So, um, you know, I don't know who her senators are, but, uh, you know, even if your senator is from Georgia, uh, you know, particularly some key places like West Virginia, uh, in Montana, North Dakota, Indiana, 
uh, these are important places to call your senators and say confirm Jeff Sessions. That's great. Teresa, thanks a lot for calling. Christian, can you stay a few more minutes? Uh, I actually have something at the top. Um, I apologize. No, no, no problem at all. Christian Adams, thanks for joining us, Election Law Center. Love to have you on again sometime. I'll get you some appropriate Rush bumper music. And, uh, <laughs> but thanks for, thanks for joining us and a great analysis as always. That's uh, Jay Christian Adams from Election Law Center. Thanks a lot, Christian. All right, Lee. Bye-bye. Top of the hour right now. By all first mention, uh, Lee Stranahan. Cuddly. He's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club for reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. This is Radio Stranahan, 619-924-0786. I want to thank Teresa for calling in. If you want to call in and be part of the program, 619-924-0786. Boy, Christian knows his stuff. It's always great to have him on. Boy, I've, I've been... We've been really blessed with some great guests in the past week. Seb Gorka, Kilburn Nelson from uh, We the People, Magic Valley, and Twin Falls, talking about that situation. Brandon Darby, my friend Michael Patrick Leahy, just some great guests uh, this week. And more coming up. Stay tuned for that. Another thing that happened yesterday, let's talk about this. Donald Trump had his high-tech meeting with high-tech CEOs, including Tim Cook, including Jeff Bezos from Amazon, that was iffy. A surprise, I guess, was Elon Musk, the head of Tesla. It's a surprise uh, because he wasn't announced until yesterday afternoon. It's not a surprise because Elon Musk was part of PayPal at the same time Peter Thiel was there. And Peter Thiel's a close advisor at this point to the Trump administration on tech. He was a vocal Trump supporter with a really rational argument. I like the fact that Peter Thiel wasn't a fanboy, but he gave a real rational case for Trump, spoke at the convention, and helped put together this high-tech meeting with Trump and Pence. And I got to say, if you've watched any of the video of it, Trump was as gracious as he could be. If people have been looking for signs of Trump being presidential, once again, this was it. Nobody in that room supported him. Peter Thiel, that was it. Nobody else in that room supported him. Now, what's interesting is Twitter's coverage of that. It was a moment on Twitter this morning. And Twitter is a pretty big news source for a lot of people. Twitter's coverage was basically just mocking it and saying, look, people have been made memes out of. What they do is they take a still picture of somebody, you know, looking awkward, which is pretty easy to do if you go through enough still pictures. And they're trying to make it seem like people were horrified to be there. I couldn't tell that they were horrified to be there. But it's interesting Twitter should treat it that way because, of course, Twitter wasn't invited. And you may think, well, Twitter's a, a big tech company, right? Well, what's interesting is not, not really. In other words, the market cap, the actual value of Twitter is about a third of the market cap of the smallest company that was there, which, which, there, which I believe was Elon Musk, uh, Tesla. 
But I was I was very glad Elon Musk was there. Again, not a fan of his politics. He said stuff politically I don't agree with. But, and I said this on Twitter earlier, the guy's a genius, and he's a big thinker. This has been a topic in the past couple of days, I guess. But I've, been ta- I've talked about it a little bit, but Elon Musk is a big thinker. If you have seen, and again, it's one of those things, and I don't like it when people do it. You know, people bring up Elon Musk. They don't like his politics. And so they criticize the innovations. The Tesla is a a heck of a car. Let me put it that way. It's an amazing technological achievement. But as a business person, he also did the right thing and started the company with a very expensive car and has been working towards a more affordable version that's going to be around thirty, forty thousand dollars 40000 that anyone will be able to afford. And the other thing that, Tes- uh, that Tesla's working on, but that Musk is working on too, is a different way of generating power. A whole different way of generating power for your home using batteries. And basically it's a big battery on the side of your house. And it sounds a little goofy, and there's some issues with it, but when you see his presentation on it, this is actually a brilliant idea. And I don't know if it's going to work out, but it's a brilliant idea. And that's the thing I like about Elon Musk is he's a big thinker. He's a big thinker. And with Tesla, I think to come in and sort of challenge the auto industry with a new car and a new company, when I lived in Dallas, the mall, there were a couple malls. There's the Galleria, that's a nice mall. Then there was North Park, which is like a much nicer mall, actually. And they had a Tesla store in the mall. And if you've ever been to a place where the Tesla store is, you can go in, you can see the frame, you can see the underbody, you can see the car. You can't drive it around the mall, although that would be fun. In my opinion, they should allow that. But if you've ever seen a Tesla, it's, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. They rethought the car in every way. And with the self-driving options and even the self-parking options and the, the sort of advanced cruise control that they have, where it will steer the car as well, it's amazing. And uh, so the interesting thing out of Elon Musk being at that meeting is he's now been named, he's been offered and apparently he's accepted in another advisory role with the Trump administration. And I'm as thrilled as I can be about that. You know, Trump has commented. One of the things about Trump, he said this when Kanye was there, he's positive if people are positive about him. The only time he really goes after people is when they attack him. People forget this. People talk about the supposedly horrible things he said about Rosie O'Donnell calling her a pig or whatever. That's not nice, but Rosie started it. I'm just going to say that. And Rosie's no shrinking violet. Rosie's a kind of tough broad. So if you want equality for women, which Rosie does, by the way, in theory, she's in favor of equality for women. In theory, Hillary Clinton and her supporters are in favor of equality for women. You can't play the woman card at that point. 
You can't say, well, he shouldn't have said that because she's a girl, which is what it comes down to. If she gets to call him a pig and she gets to call him names, it's kind of acceptable for him to do it back, in my opinion. If she's just minding her own business and he calls her that, then, then there's a problem. It's a problem of manners as much as anything. It's not really a problem problem. It's a problem of manners. It's a problem of words hurting. But I, again, this is an area where we've gone way too far. Love to hear your opinion on any of this. So the number to call in, 619-924-0786. That number again, 619-924-0786. We have new cabinet appointments, too. They're coming at a, a decent pace now. Representative Zinke from Montana is apparently going to be heading up the Department of Interior. And that's a good move for anyone. It'll be really interesting to see how this breaks down. You remember the people who took over the Bundy people who took over a government building and had the armed standoff that ended in the death of one of them. By the way, that was another Black Lives Matter messaging fiasco. It just shows one of the key aspects of a lot of Black Lives Matter activists is just how damn ignorant they are. It's just they they are in such a tight bubble where they still want to believe hands up, don't shoot was something that actually happened when it wasn't. That you'll still hear Black Lives Matter activists say, oh, well, if that was a, a black group that had taken over the government building, someone would have been killed, forgetting the fact that it was a, a white, largely white group. I think it was all white, maybe. I don't know. I don't think that was necessarily a, uh, a requirement. But a, a person was killed. But whatever. Don't sweat that. Just leave that aside. A person was killed, but don't worry about that. But the reason I mention that is what was really at stake there for a lot of the people, I'm not going to talk about the protesters who were there themselves. I have some problems with uh, the Bundys, have some problems with them. But there are legitimate concerns to be raised about how much land is under government control, particularly in the West, the Pacific Northwest. And Zinke from Montana has made sure there's more public access to those lands. And it'll be very interesting to see if in a Trump administration, this is an issue that actually gets dealt with. We're seeing there, you know, again, and Jay Krishnabs and I just talked about this in the last hour. The problem is when someone comes in and takes over one of these positions, cabinet secretary, there's a whole bureaucracy under them. That's not going to go anywhere. We talked about it last hour about the problem Sessions is going to face. As a new attorney general, assuming he's confirmed, which most people believe he will be, but it doesn't make any difference. Whoever's in there is attorney general. Christian Adams talked about it like basically taking over an enemy ship, and you've got the same crew who was just fighting against you. 
That's what Sessions is facing. And in a lot of these departments, the Interior Department, the Labor Department especially, oh, my gosh, the Labor Department, the Labor Department, if you don't know anything about the power of the institutional left, you could pick worse places to start than the Labor Department under Hilda Solis and Perez. The Labor Department has been a branch of the unions, basically. It's been explicitly controlled by the unions. In place at the Labor Department, all have the union leftist mindset. They would call themselves pro-worker. I disagree. And judging by the election results, I think a lot of workers would actually disagree, particularly in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. But the Labor Department has been, like I say, basically a branch of the SEIU and AFL-CIO and other unions. I did a story a couple of years ago about the – they're agitating. They're agitating in the Labor Department. There were posters hung up agitating. And so I've talked about them, but the – Guy who's been nominated to head up the Department of Labor, I'll tell you one thing about him. He's not a union crony. People disagree with some of his stances on immigration in the past. And by the way, I do too. I'm not at all a comprehensive immigration reform person, but that's not the department he's going to be heading up. He's going to be heading up the Labor Department. And so a guy who's going to hold a hard line on the union's is perfectly all right with me. It's quarter past the hour. You're listening to Radio Stranding. It's Radio Stranding. <laughs> number to call in, nine, oops, 619-924-0786. That number again, 619 924 0786. If you want to talk about the cabinet appointments or Syria or anything else in the news, just give a call. I'm going to switch back to what we're talking about at the top of the show, which is this press conference that was held. I'm going to play the clip again. This is Associated Press reporter questioning the State Department spokesman, John Kirby. I'm going to play this again. I'm going to focus on something different than I focused in the first hour. But just listen to the exchange again. The first person we hear speaking is John Kirby, State Department uh, spokesman. And then we hear a question from the reporter. But listen to Kirby's answer as well. This is what I want to focus on his answer in particular, I want to focus on the Russian aspect of it. Let's listen to this again. Uh, Lee Stranahan, Braveheart investigative reporter. Oops. Wrong clip. Hang on one second. The end of the siege in Aleppo is not the end of the war in Syria. So That's again, Junker. That's, uh, that's what I wanted to start with today, Brian. So um, on Aleppo, <coughs> we've heard a lot of moral outrage from 
this podium from the Secretary, from the U.S. the U.N. Ambassador yesterday, from the White House. What is what is the goal of all of this? Uh, I mean, we've been hearing the same message for many months, in fact, for years, yet nothing has really changed to stop it. So, what what is the goal right now of kind of laying all the blame on Russia? What are you doing differently to stop the war now? Well, the, the, the you know, you, I, I don't know if you meant it. Oh, boy, I guess I cut it off there. Well, let me tell you where he goes. I forgot that I cut, cut it off there. I cut it off at the Elmer Fudd part. What are you doing differently to stop the war now? Well, the, the, the you know, you, I, I don't know if you meant it. That's embarrassing. But let me say what his answer is. His answer is Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. His answer is forget the U.S.'s role in this. Forget what we've done. Forget the foreign policy failures. Forget the fact that we haven't been able to accomplish anything. No, just ignore all that. Let's focus on Russia. That's what, it, that's what it was, literally. Let's focus on Russia. And later, Clapper, the reporter, says to him, for the State Department of the United States of America, the biggest superpower in the world, we still are, why do you just blame Russia when this stuff comes up? Don't you have anything original to say? And John Kirby, and again, you feel badly for these spokespeople somewhat. Not completely. I don't feel completely sympathetic for them because they could choose another job. It's not like they're indentured servants or anything like that. John Kirby could choose a more honest line of work, such as used car sales, something like that, selling reverse mortgages, something slightly more honest. But he chose to be the spokesman for the State Department, and, you know, there you go. But they literally don't have an answer. And once again, I touched on this earlier. But I find it, you know, maybe, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And there is such a thing as confirmation bias. And I'm well aware of it. It's a thing that exists. So maybe this is confirmation bias on my part. But since I'm America's finest reporter, I tend to doubt it. I'm seeing Russia come up over and over and over again. They're getting the blame for the election loss. And my friend Brandon Darby had a good point, I think. I talked to him the other day about this. And he's very worried. And other people have expressed this this concern as well, that what's really happening here is an attempt to delegitimize Russia ahead of Trump coming in. So if Trump makes any attempt to change policy in Syria, the media will immediately spring forth with a chorus of, oh, look, he's doing Russia's bidding. Oh, look, he's sucking up to Putin. Oh, look, he's a tool of the Kremlin. They're softening the ground right now. That's what they're doing. The media right now is softening the ground, trying to set up a situation so that when Trump takes power, if he makes any changes, They've already poisoned the well against them. Now, this is incredibly dangerous. 
able to happen because the media has kept people in the dark on what's really going on in Syria. Now, I've said this before. As a reporter, what I've found is every time I cover a story, it seems, I can't just cover the story. So I can't, it's not enough for me to write about what's going on in Syria. I also have to talk about, it's not enough for me to write about the Pigford story. It's not enough for me to write about the institutional left. It's not enough for me to write about the Steubenville rape case. I also have to talk about how the media screws up every story I write about. The Huma Abedin story, not enough for me to write about it. I can't just report the facts. And this creates a huge problem, which is it's like paddling uphill against a waterfall. I'll be honest with you. This is my perspective as a reporter. A lot of times I feel I'm paddling up a waterfall. It's not just paddling upstream. That would be easy. And it's not just paddling upstream at like a 10-degree angle. It's like at a 90-degree angle. That's how pervasive the media is. And they have a huge advantage. You know, I write a story four or five times a week, sometimes six or seven, sometimes a little more at Breitbart. We have a big reader base, 45 million people. More and more people are reading Breitbart. I think they're going over there and reading us, not because they're racist, sexist, homophobic, Islamophobic, misogynist, whatever you want to call them. They're doing it because they know that the media is not giving them the straight dope. And they want the straight dope. They want the truth. At least that's why I hope they're showing up. And at least in the work I do, I can't vouch for everybody who writes at Breitbart any more than if I worked at the Washington Post. I wouldn't vouch for everybody who works there. And by the way, if I worked at the Washington Post, I'd be doing the same work I'm doing now. I have no interest in dropping my standards no matter who I work for. Emphasize things a little differently. If I know I'm writing to a more general audience or to a left-wing audience, I might tailor the messaging so it matches their experience. I, would take, I wouldn't take certain things for granted with them. But that's about it. It would be a slight change in emphasis. And by the way, that's the way it should be. So I'm not saying if I wrote to the Washington Post, I would not be a different writer fundamentally. I'd be covering the same topics. I'd be talking about Uma Abedin. be talking about Black Lives Matter, be exposing the institutional left. That's what I'm doing. That's what I want to do. Those are the areas, I mean, you know, a few more, but this is the area I focus in. But you can't report about it without talking about the media and how screwed up the media has made things. Now, once again, and you'll hear me say this, and by the way, if you want to be part of the show, call in 619-924-0786. Pick up the phone. Don't be shy. Don't be scared. Feel free to disagree. You know, it's interesting. We even have enough people disagreeing. That's what I'll, I will say that. I really appreciate all the callers we have. But I wouldn't mind a little disagreement, by the way. So if, you, if you're able to disagree without being overly disagreeable, 619-924-0786. 
but it's not enough to just complain about the media. And you'll hear me say this over and over again. It's not enough to just complain about the mainstream media. You have to have something to replace it with. You, you have to. And Breitbart, for instance, doesn't cover the weather. We don't cover the broad entertainment news. We don't do movie reviews, right? Our sports section, we don't have a scoreboard. So Breitbart is not going to replace what you would get out of a site like CNN, out of a site like even the New York Times. And I don't think it's its purpose, but, uh, you know, I know for a fact one of Andrew's goals was to take down CNN and the New York Times. So the question becomes, how do you do that? Let's take that goal literally and seriously, because that's what I've been doing the past few days. I've talked about this. I started to think about getting loftier goals, having really big goals. And so part of it is I just drill back to the original Andrew premise Let's take out CNN and the New York Times. This isn't a criticism of Breitbart. Any more than I don't criticize a pizza place for not selling French food. Does that make sense? They're two different things. Right now, most right-wing media is not designed for the general public, which means they don't cover things. They're not designed to be a replacement for a general purpose news site. Does that make sense? They're designed to give a slightly different perspective or a very different perspective, but on political issues primarily. So if you want to know whether the Red Sox won last night or, by the way, they didn't because it's the middle of winter, let's skip that. But if you want to know what do people play and win hockey, that's a good one. I guess football for another few weeks, something like that. I'm not a big football fan. But the point is, if you want to know last night's score, Breitbart's not the place to go right now. That's not a criticism. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. And again, there's not a big weather map of the United States in bright colors. And all that means is Breitbart cannot literally take the place. It is not set up right now to be your only news source. A place like USA Today or CNN or even New York Times, any big paper, they're everything you need. New movie comes out, there's a review of it, right? That's what they do. Right now, the right-wing media, and again, I'm not picking on Breitbart because nobody's done it. Daily Caller, Twitchy is even more focused than that. They just focus on Twitter, social media. Smart strategy, smart move, focusing in on a smaller niche is a good idea. But none of these sites can be a complete replacement. And maybe that's something that needs to change. Maybe that's something that needs to change. And that's not my area, so I don't have any idea what it would take to do that. But if you're serious about taking out CNN and the New York Times, you have to actually replace them. And I'll tell you the other thing that I'm not overly thrilled with with news sites in general. Is 
the way they focus on advertising that's intrusive. Now, again, I'm pro-capitalist. I'm very pro-capitalist. I'm pro-innovation. But, boy, obtrusive advertising bugs me. Maybe I'm alone. Maybe everyone else likes that you're trying to read a news story and suddenly a video starts playing loudly. But it breaks my concentration. I can't deal with it. And I have to deal with it. And again, I'm not picking anybody by saying they do that. A lot of places do that. But I got to tell you, it's not ideal. And at that point, people go, well, how would you pay for it then? Can't be free. In theory, the advertising on Breitbart that I'm slightly complaining about pays my salary. And that's where innovation is needed again. I think the solution to a lot of this stuff is innovating and thinking bigger. And the reason, look, I I mentioned thinking bigger because this gets into the criticism I was just making. Nobody in the right is trying to literally, they're not even trying. I talked yesterday about how you you hit for what you aim for, but usually a little lower, right? So if you set a big lofty goal, you might not meet it, but you'll do better than if you set a small goal. By the way, it's 30 minutes past the hour. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. I'm just flipping through my bumpers here. I want to find one I haven't played this episode. Let's, uh, let's try. It's fun. I get to be my own board op and talk. And I don't have a call screener, but that's fine because multitasking is in. Do we want to do that's music? No, I don't want to do that one. Oh yeah, listen, I've I've accidentally played this a few times. I'll play this as my bottom of the hour bumper. Here we go. Uh, Lee Stranahan, Breitbart investigative reporter, who is well, just knows everything. Radio Stranahan, it's all good. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Breaking news right now: Dylan Roof. The murderer, not just accused, not just alleged, the murderer of nine people at the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, killed Christians while they prayed, Dylan Roof did, after being welcomed in. Dylan Roof, white, welcomed into the black church, sat with them for some period of time before opening fire and killing nine Christians at a black church has been convicted. Surprising to nobody. I've been saying this for a while this week that this is not a hard call to make that Dylan Roof was going to be found guilty. The next phase is the punishment phase where we'll see whether he gets the death penalty or not. I'm going to go out on a very short limb here and say he's going to get the death penalty. That is pretty much, look, the odds are great. Because I think he wants the death penalty. And it's a story I know something about, uh, not just the the way people have, but I spent about two weeks in uh, Charleston. Brandon Darby and I, my friend Brandon, and I got on the scene 
within 24 hours of the shooting. And then I I hung out. Brandon had other stuff to do. I hung out. Uh, I actually left and came back. And I would go down to the First AME Church there in Charleston, the historic uh, First AME Church. Talked to people, interviewed people. Went to a new Black Panther Party rally. We were talking to Jay Christian Adams earlier about how a member of the new Black Panthers was intimidating people outside the polls. I went to a uh, couple speeches by the new Black Panthers that happened just a few blocks from the church. Every media outlet in the world was there. It's a surreal, surreal experience. So, I'm, so for one thing, I'm glad Dylan Roof was convicted because he's clearly guilty. And anybody who is so, so clearly guilty, I'm always going to be glad they're convicted. And I'm not a big death penalty advocate. I, I worry about putting that power in the hands of the state. But I'm not going to be breaking a sweat too much over this one. I'm not going to be too worried about this one. It was a surreal scene. It was a, uh, when we got there within 24 hours, the um, AME church, people were just starting to show up. The media was just starting to get there. Within about two or three days, within a day, but certainly within two or three days, the international media, everybody had showed up. And right down at the street in front of the church, Every media outlet was in the world there, and the world was there. And then the way a story like that breaks down, um, there were a number of funerals, and those took a few days to start in most cases. And then you'd have people at the funeral. So Jesse Jackson was there, and Al Sharpton was there. But also people like Armstrong Williams, the great conservative, black conservative, campaign manager for Ben Carson, I saw and talked to Armstrong Williams there. And again, every media outlet in the world. So I saw and I talked to CNN's Don Lemon there. We have a mutual acquaintance. Talked to Don Lemon. Um, and the surreal part of it, though, was the way the flowers and everything else built up in front of the church. Now, Now, the weird thing about it was you know, you could go right up to the church. You couldn't go inside. Um, that was still closed off to almost everybody. And for the first few days, it was closed off because it was a crime scene. But the surreal part was you realize standing next to the building that you were only about 15 people from where nine people lost their lives, 15 feet from where nine people lost their lives. I mean, you were right there. I covered the pulse shooting, too, in Orlando. I hate covering these stories, by the way. I'll explain why in a second, but I hate covering these stories. The other big shooting I covered was the Umpqua Community College shooting up in Roseburg, Oregon. That was also uh, surreal because I was the first national reporter on the scene there. I happened to be about 45 minutes from Roseburg, Oregon when the word came in. Charleston shooting you were right next to the church. In the Pulse shooting, you couldn't get within three blocks of the Pulse nightclub. The police had everything cordoned off. You couldn't get anywhere near there. And 
I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying that's the way it was. So in Charleston, what was so weird was you were just right there, and you knew that people had died just inside that building. And then to see the whole thing build up. Now, the people of Charleston were great. When I talk about the new Black Panther Party, those were people from out of town. And people like to take advantage of it. And, you know, one of the things that people said to me there, we're talking about Dylan Roof, the word has come in breaking news that Dylan Roof, the murderer who killed nine Christians, nine black Christians, has been found guilty in South Carolina. I'm talking about my experience covering that story. The people in Charleston were great. By the way, Charleston's a beautiful town. Charleston reminds me of New New Orleans without the drunken voodoo aspect of it. And by the way, for a lot of people, the drunken voodoo aspect is their favorite part of New Orleans. But Charleston's got not the same, but I would say similar architecture on slightly better shape. We have a caller. Let me take the caller right now. Hang on one sec. Again, I have to hit the buttons here. Oops, and just as I hit the buttons, the caller vanished. If you're the call, I don't know, did I hit the wrong button? Feel free to call back. If you called in, feel free to call back. But Charleston's a beautiful city, and it's a very affluent city in a lot of ways. Very nice shopping area and whatnot. But the people of Charleston were fantastic. That's one of the reasons I left, because I didn't think there was going to be, there was no real rioting or anything like that afterwards. People were upset. People were sad. People thought it was a tragedy. But they felt like the Dylan Roof shooting, first off, he wasn't from Charleston. He had to come from, you know, a couple hundred miles away to do that shooting. And they felt like he was an interloper. And when I go and I cover a story like that, I, particularly it's a, a race story, where Dylan Roof was a racist, He did kill people for their race. That's what he did. In a story like that, I like to make sure I talk to to not just one group of people. I like to talk to a variety of people. And in that case, I want to talk to black citizens. I want to talk to white citizens. I have a method. This is a little, I'll give you a little free journalism tip. It's where you eat. Pick a good place to eat. Try to go places where locals eat. And I tried to go places where black locals would eat. And I tried to go to places where white locals would eat. So I went to some black restaurants. And by the way, this explains my diabetes. Because, look, I love southern and soul food. And barbecue, southern soul food barbecue. I know the Roscoe's chicken and waffle menu by heart. For instance, if you're going to be in L.A., and you want to order chicken and waffles, I would suggest, if you've never been to waffles, get the number 13, the Carol C. Special, which is one delicious waffle and one succulent chicken breast. I would suggest you get it smothered, covered in gravy. Not the waffle, the chicken. Although the waffle would probably be pretty good, too. Even thinking about it, my blood sugar just went up. But I love southern and soul food. You know, what's interesting is a lot of reporters, this is why I am America's not just finest reporter, but one of the ones with the highest body mass index. 
I'm a little chubby. Let's let's face it. There are fatter reporters than I am, though. I got to say, there are fatter reporters. I won't mention them by name because some of them are women. And again, that gets you know why and why bring it up. But there's a few of the ladies who would beat me in a way in. Let's just put it that way. But I like to go, if you're going to eat meals, which you are when you're covering a story, a lot of these reporters never set foot outside any place. (laughs) You know, if I go someplace and I'm trying to figure out the story and I'm trying to figure out what the deal is in a place like Charleston, if I thought Charleston was a real racist city, I would report it. If I saw a lot of support for Dylan Roof there, you're darn right I would tell you about it. Because I don't carry water for people. But when I go into a story like Charleston, I make sure that I, I go to soul food restaurants. The same thing when I was covering the Pigford story. We ate at a lot of black restaurants where we're the only white folks in there. And I'm very comfortable in that situation, particularly if there's food involved. It was the same thing when I was arrested earlier this year in Baton Rouge for covering the Baton Rouge protest. Some people were kind of freaked out. I'm like, gee, weren't you worried? And I wasn't worried. Not that the food was any good. But anyway, we have a caller on 802 area code. Let me see if I can do this properly. 802, you're on the air. What can we do for you? And they went away again. If you're in the 802 and you called back, feel free to call in again. I let the call hang previously, but I tried to I tried to get to it quickly this time. But as soon as I clicked over, it vanished. Two ships have passed in the night. But feel free to call back if you want to call in. 619-924-0786. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Forty-three past the hour. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. My name is Lee Stranahan. Talking about Dylan Roof has been found guilty in Charleston, South Carolina. It's a story I covered. I'm talking a little bit about it. All of these stories are horrible to cover, though. And uh, let me explain. It's not just the senseless death. Uh, Dealing with stuff like the Emco Community College shooting, the Pulse shooting, the Charleston shooting, all stories that I've covered, they're horrible to cover as a reporter. And again, the senseless death aspect gets to you. Um, I'm not going to lie. So between those three shootings, there's about 70, what would it be? 66, 67 people dead. I think we had eight dead at the Umco Community College shooting, 49 in Orlando, and then another eight in Charleston. That's a lot of dead people. That's a lot of senseless violence. But as a reporter, the reason those stories are horrible to cover is because there's nothing for you to do. There really isn't. There's really almost nothing for you to do. The facts of the case you're not going to discover them. I'm not going to go digging around a crime scene and then uncover something. And I'm an investigative reporter. That means I like to investigate. 
So there's stories that have to be covered. And I'll cover them. I've covered them. And I, and I think I do a good job of covering them. And I try to find fresh angles on them. Did a lot of interviews when we were in Roseburg, Oregon. Did a lot of talking to people, a lot of interviews in Charleston, South Carolina. Talked to some people, black people, who wanted to race for which is Dylan Roos' goal. So, hey, good job. Good job, Dylan. One could argue that the race war became a shooting war when police officers were shot in Dallas, Texas, and then a couple of weeks later in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I went down to cover the Alton Sterling shootings. But see, uh, the Alton Sterling shooting. But see, at least in the Alton Sterling shooting, because they were active protest, there was something to cover. I covered the protest. And those are interesting because it's an event going on. In a sense, it's like a live sporting event. There's something happening you can go cover. With the Orlando Pulse shooting, I was only there for a couple of days. There was very little to cover. Milo showed up, uh, but there was very little to cover. The police wouldn't let you anywhere near the scene. And again, even if they did, what are you going to? You're not going to discover anything. So, um, instead, what you end up covering, what, what I, the way I approach it, is I try to get a sense of what's actually going on, and then I look at what the media narratives are, and whether they're honest or dishonest. The left, and this is a topic I'll be talking about quite a bit, but the left has a real agenda right now in wanting to kick up a race war. In fact, you know what? That's a provocative statement. So let me explain that statement a little bit more after a quick little short break in in an announcement about the uh, citizen journalism school. But let me explain that because it's a provocative statement. When I say the left wants to stir up a race war, yeah, you might question that. That sounds a little... Uh, kooky possibly and it is kooky but it's uh, it's not kooky in the way it's like incorrect it's completely correct unfortunately and so I'll talk about that in one second I'm just trying to find an appropriate bumper hang on here here's a good one bringing the truth to all 50 states yeah even Massachusetts Radio Stratton you're listening to Radio Stranahan. It's 48 minutes past the hour. Radio Stranahan is brought to you by Citizen Journalism School, citizenjournalismschool.com. Go over there. i got a free gift for you, free course, Build Your Media Empire, and we're going to be announcing the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship Program, a chance to work directly, get your questions answered, what you want to know about journalism, plus I'll teach you everything you need to know about researching stories, getting the facts, the technical aspects of handling journalism, how to do audio, how to do video, how to get a story written, how I write. Every single aspect of journalism, the way I do it, citizenjournalismschool.com. Check it out. Sign up for the free class, and you'll be notified about the Citizen Journalism School mentorship program that will be announced in the next couple of days. So before that brief little commercial announcement, I talked about how the left wants to stir up a race war. Now, this is something I talk about in my upcoming film, 
previously called Bloody Road to Philadelphia, we're re-gearing the film to be generally about the institutional left. And actually, I'll have a clip from that film up on Breitbart in the next few days. I'm going to be posting it hopefully for the weekend. Uh, we have a short clip from that film that goes into some of the aspects of uh, voter intimidation. Some of the stuff uh, that uh, J. Christian Adams was actually talking about earlier in the show. But I also get into this aspect, and I said it before that little break, and I want to talk about it. This idea that the left is trying to stir up a race war. And they absolutely are, and we go into detail about it in the film. And they try to do this through agitation propaganda. And you'll hear me. I talk about persuasion a lot on this show. And it's a problem. How do you start a race war? Particularly when there's so many aspects of life today that are awesome. You know, I have a supercomputer on my wrist and in my pocket. Right, your phone. I'm, you know, you, you may have detected this by the conversation about Rush and tech stuff. I'm a nerd, and I've been a nerd for a long time. My first computer was a TRS-80 back in 1979, uh, with 16K of memory and a cassette drive. Remember that? So Radio Shack, even Radio Shack. Remember Radio Shack? Uh, gone now, but. My first computer is a Radio Shack TRS-80. I learned to program in level one basic. And so I love technology. And technology, boy, if you just measure the world by the state of technology, the world is awesome. I have every song in the world in my pocket, except Bob Seger. For some inexplicable reason, Bob Seger still hasn't gone digital, but okay. And Prince. Prince took all his stuff down. But even then, if I just grabbed the albums, I could have them. And by the way, I've done that. I actually have everything by Prince and Bob Seger on a hard drive somewhere. And so I could carry it around with me. You have movies, streaming video. It's amazing. I can communicate. I can, do, I can use Periscope to do a video that people around the world can watch. It's an amazing time. So how do you get someone in this amazing time to want to kill other people, whether they're a jihadist or whether you're trying to start a race war. How do you get somebody to wake up one morning and say, I think I'm going to kill cops in a suicidal move that's sure to get me killed today instead of listening to Prince albums tomorrow? How do you get someone to do that? And the way you get somebody to do that is through constant agitation and propaganda. Again, this is why these persuasion techniques and influence techniques are so important. Now, these techniques of agitation and propaganda were perfected in the 40s and 50s with medical experiments, psychological experiments. We learned a lot about human behavior in that period. But some of it we've known for a long time, such as if you threaten somebody, they'll do things. That's a good one. Fear is a good motivator. If you tell people, I'll kill you or your children, they tend to uh, do what you want. Criminals have known this for a long time. You don't need a big psychological double-blind study to figure that one out. That's easy. And the left has figured this out too, not just the academic left. There's a reason some of their tactics are so thuggy 
But when I say the left wants a race war, this goes back to the early communists, but I'm, I'm going to trace it back to the pre-war 30s with a group my friend Andrew Breitbart wrote about that I've written about substantially, which is the Frankfurt School. Now, I go on about the Frankfurt School, and I talk about them frequently. And again, this is an area where I'm going to make you smarter. I talk about the Frankfurt School frequently because really they're so influential on what's going on today. So, for instance, this is not conjecture. You can trace a line. One of the leading thinkers of the Frankfurt School, now who is the Frankfurt School? It was a group of German philosophers who wanted to rescue communism and promote it. Communism was having trouble catching on in the 30s. And so they came up with this concept that the right way to spread Marxism was through culture. They really didn't call it cultural Marxism, but that's the term that people have put on it, and it's a valid term. It's a way of spreading Marxist philosophy through the culture, through the media, through entertainment. And again, you got to hand it to them. That was an innovation at the time. And there are different people associated with that, Gramsci, Adorno, but the one I want to focus on, you don't have to worry about all the names. The one I want you to focus on is Herbert Marcuse. M-A-R-C-U-S-E, Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse was, again, a German philosopher of the Frankfurt School. And he became known in the 1960s as the philosopher of the new left. Now, at that point, Marcuse was an old dude, an old white German dude. But who was his protege? His protege, who he met when he was teaching, here's what happened. Let's go over. Most of the uh, Frankfurt School were Jewish. Uh, most, if not all. I think all, but I'm not going to say say that. But people associated with most, if not all, were Jewish. And they were in Germany. And it was the 1930s. So we all know what happened in the 1940s. And it started in the 30s. Once they realized the danger of the Nazis, a lot of them started to flee. And Marcuse came to America. He came to the United States. And he actually worked with the government for a period of time. And then he began a t- teaching philosophy, and he taught at Brandeis University, exclusive women's college uh, in Massachusetts. And one of his students there was Angela Davis. Now, you've seen Angela Davis, iconic 1960s radical with a gigantic afro. That's how people remember Angela Davis. You've heard the chants, Free Angela, Free Angela Davis and All Political Prisoners. There's a film that came out a couple of years ago produced by Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. And Angela Davis has been made out to be a hero. She's not a hero. She's a commie thug, in my opinion. She's dangerous. But her mentor was Herbert Marcuse. And again, just look it up. Look up Angela Davis Marcuse, M-A-R-C-U-S-E, and you'll see a photo of Angela Y. Davis with Herbert Marcuse. And the 
philosophy of Marcuse. He wrote a number of books. And one of his big books was uh, one of his big essays, hugely influential to the radical left, The Hippies and the Weather Underground. People like Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dorn, was an essay called On Liberation. They all knew it. They all talked about, they would all get high and talk about Marcuse and revolution. That's what they would do. And in On Revolution, Marcuse talks about, this is why I say they want to raise war. The problem they had was Americans didn't want to overthrow the bourgeoisie. American workers don't hate the rich. They want to be rich. We've seen that with Donald Trump. But this is a problem even in the 60s, is that most working Americans literally don't hate the rich. They just would like to have more money themselves. So trying to stir up class envy has never been a successful technique for the left. So instead, they've tried to stir up racial envy. They've tried to stir up racial hatred. And obviously, America's got racial problems. They go back to the founding of the country, slavery, horrible institution, but not a uniquely American institution. Far from it. And not something that was an American innovation. Some parts of it were new. And I'm not trying to justify slavery. Or Slavery is a horrible institution, period. I said it. I don't even have to say it again. It's stupid to say anything other than that. However, it's not uniquely American. And what the communists tried to do, including Marcuse, was try to make it, and Angela Davis and his protege, is make it uniquely American and stir up racial hatred to say that there was something uniquely American about it and that if you're black, you're oppressed, you're still oppressed, you're just as oppressed today as you, as you were when you were a slave. And they've done this through constant agitation with that message. That's what we saw earlier this year with a film about the Black Panthers that came out on PBS. And to me, it's no wonder that the cop shootings happened in the wake of that. This is a topic I have a lot more to say about, but we're out of time. Thanks to Jay Christian Adams for being part of the show. Until next time, I'm Lee Stranahan. Thank you for being part of it. We'll see you next time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.